0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovic and Dr. Sammy Steele. So, Monica, I have this
1: patient. She has been coming to see me for several months now, and she has vaginismus. I'm going to call her Sarah. And Sarah is someone who I find challenging to deal with because there's a lot of emotional stuff, anxiety stuff wrapped into her care, and I find it hard to untangle. She initially came to see me about four months ago for this vaginismus problem, and it was restricting her ability to have sex with her partner. She had just gotten married a few months before she came to see me. She came from a very traditional culture where she waited until marriage to have sex, had a lot of ideas growing up about what sex meant and what it meant for her as a wife. And now that she is coming in to see me, she can't have sex. And I think it is affecting her sense of identity and responsibility as a wife a lot. She's also super worried about what this pain with sex means to her ability to have children and to provide her parents with grandchildren. And it's just this big emotional burden that she's carrying about this problem. She also is one of those patients who goes through a lot of medical testing to figure out what's going on. She is constantly looking for the latest procedure, the latest test, something that will give her these answers that she's looking for she comes in and tells me, today I got a bladder scope, today I got this, today I got that. And it's not really helping this underlying issue that I see of this anxiety and this fear around her condition. And so I really struggle with her because I feel like she has this problem that's so clear to me, which is she's stressed, she's anxious, she needs to talk through some of this stuff with somebody. But she's also only willing to approach it from a medical perspective. And Isn't willing to dive in as much with a counselor. I just feel like that's such a huge mismatch with what
0: I think that she could benefit from. We've all been there, Sammy. I can think of so many patients that you just described here with vaginismus. So, what do you think is getting in the way of your communication and your relationship together?
1: It's interesting, actually. We had this kind of breakthrough after a couple of months. We had been working together on manual therapy and stretches and dilators and things like that. I was noticing this large issue with compliance with those things, that yucky word that we hate, compliance. And I was trying to get to the bottom of why she wasn't doing the dilators and not from Mm -hmm. a perspective of why aren't you doing this thing that I'm telling you to do, but more from a perspective of trying to understand what the problem was with it. I realized in this conversation that I had with her, when I finally brought it up, she had a lot of misinformation about her own body. She was worried she was going to insert it into the wrong hole. She wasn't totally sure where her vagina even was. She was scared Mm -hmm. about what it might mean to break her hymen how much it might hurt. And those are things that she hadn't shared with me. And I was like, whoa, okay. You know, that's, of course you wouldn't want to do dilators if you were afraid of those things. I didn't even ask you about that. And Mm -hmm. that was a wake up call for me too, because I felt like she was missing this key piece of information that
0: would have helped her with that quote unquote compliance. It sounds like there was a mismatch between her fears, her concerns, And perhaps the education or the conversation between the two of you, you've got this person who it sounds like keeps coming back into therapy, is obviously trying to figure out what is going on with them. And at the same time is not doing the very things that would help them get better. And so you're saying, okay, hold on, there's a mismatch here. What is going on that you are so consistent with pelvic PT but you are only consistent when you are in the office with me and there's little to no follow-up between visits. Am I reading that situation correctly?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to wonder with some of those people, why are you here if you're not doing the stuff at home? In that moment, I realized she was coming in for expert guidance. She didn't feel like she had the tools or the knowledge on her own and she was scared to do it wrong. And she trusted my expertise to do the right thing with her. And so of course, she's not going to be able to do it on her own at home. I didn't give her the the self-efficacy for those things, right? So that's, that was pretty interesting. I felt like there was a really large gap in communication there. The thing that really struck me about this patient who was pain catastrophizing and and fear avoidance and all of these things that were wrapped up in her pain. All of the psychological stuff that I didn't have the words for or didn't have the background knowledge on, now I'm kind of seeing in a different light.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you were speaking to the helplessness part. For anyone who is not familiar, catastrophizing is a phenomenon that's characterized by really three components. Magnifying your pain. An example of this is a person who is really worried that something serious is going on. And we hear that in Sammy's case because this woman keeps getting medical tests. She's getting bladder scopes and she's coming in for vaginismus. So she's worried there is a serious underlying reason for her condition. This also is characterized by rumination. And rumination is constantly thinking about the pain or the effects of the pain, how much it hurts, how much it's affecting you. You you can't really get it out of your head or thinking about it all the time. And finally, the third domain is helplessness. And that's where we see this disconnect where the patient didn't believe that she had the tools to do these treatments at home herself. So helplessness, just as it sounds, I feel like I can't go on. I feel like I can't stand it anymore. I I think it's terrible. It's never going to get any better. I worry about whether it's going to end. And essentially feeling like there is nothing you can do to end the pain. These people who catastrophize, which by the way, that can happen outside of pelvic pain, I think are some of the most... Fascinating and frustrating patients to work with. (laughs) I really do at this point because when you've got someone who has really high helplessness in the clinic, it is so easy, at least for me, to become like super frustrated. Like I want them to be able to take over and do the thing. And I'm trying not to be frustrated with them, but internally I'm feeling like, come on, there's things that you can do about this. And I think when it comes to these patients, I recognize them in retrospect. And tell me if any of this sounds familiar with this patient or others. You have a person who comes in, they're very distressed by their pain. That's all they can talk about in the evaluation. There's probably very little rapport building outside of this this pain that they're coming in for. When you ask, how are you in a follow-up session, they tell you about their pain. There's no like, hey, my weekend was blah, 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 or today I'm tired. It, it's just their pain mm-hmm. recap right away. And you start off your session, you feel like, you know what, I know that we're working on pelvic pain. I know we're doing vaginismus or urinary frequency. I got it. And sometimes this patient is also hypervigilant because they have been ruminating, because they magnify, because there's a sense of helplessness. They may become hyper focused on all the sensations in their body. And even with my own vaginismus patients, I recall one person who's like, my hip flexors are so tight. So what do you know, Sammy? Next thing, I am chasing the hip flexor tightness <laughs> and giving glute exercises and doing all these different treatments. And this kind of goes on, right? They usually have some next thing that you go chasing with them because they are chasing something. They are chasing answers. They are chasing certainty. They, they want to know So as they're running around trying to catch their tail, you start running with them, Uh trying to help them catch their tail. And you have a moment, I think we all do, a few sessions in where you're like, hold on, what are we doing here? Yeah. What is going on? Or, and I think if you're really, if you haven't identified this before, if you haven't said this person is catastrophizing, if you're not at that level of awareness, that's okay here's how you're going to find your patient. This is the person, in my experience, this is the person that you say, I need to learn more. I, don't, I do not know enough about this condition. Yep. I've tried. But when you look at your note, here's how you check yourself. When you look at your note, you've tried all the things with them. Yep. You've tried everything. You may also look at your note and see that you've actually been pretty disorganized and that your plan of care has changed almost every visit if it's pretty severe and remember please that catastrophizing is on a spectrum so it's not like binary i do or i don't catastrophize it's to what extent do you catastrophize so you may not be as severe as i'm describing but in people who are really catastrophizing if you don't understand that you will end up chasing their pain. You will be trying to explain things where you're like, "This isn't even the biopsychosocial model anymore." Like now, I'm getting kinesio, pathological. I'm trying to explain all these miniature things that they're bringing up to me. And if we step back and look at the ten thousand foot view, those things are not even relevant. You have a sexual dysfunction, right? You you do not understand sex ed. You clearly have some beliefs and misconceptions about it and you need help with that. This person has pain catastrophizing and that's part of what it sounds like needs to be addressed is the catastrophizing itself so that you can do the treatment related to the specific condition they have. If the catastrophizing is ignored, you will probably not get very far. Absolutely. And Monica, one of the biggest risk
1: factors for developing chronic pain is pain catastrophizing right it's all linked together and so if you're ignoring this huge psychological presentation and this way that this person is relating to their pain of course you're not going to get very far they're going to keep coming to you for these like passive treatments and give me the answers give me the treatments fix me and what happens is we start to get into that fixer mode. We start to go down all these little rabbit holes with the person to bring back our kind of mountain analogy too. Instead of being this knowledgeable, calm, observant guide and helping the person figure out their own terrain and their own map, you're with them on this trail. And all of a sudden, this person's like, we're lost. I don't know where I am. We're out in the woods. I'm, I'm lost. I'm freaked out. And you're like, well, I see the peak right there we're going down this trail. I don't really feel lost. But because they're so panicked, you go, okay, let's start trying to find our way back to the trail, even though you're already on the trail. And then you're running around. And meanwhile, you're getting more and more lost because this person's running (laughs) down like whatever trail they're finding. And they're like out in the middle of the woods running around like crazy. And you're following them and you're encouraging it almost like, oh my gosh, let's check behind this tree. Let's go behind this stream, whatever. And before you know it, you actually are lost. You don't even know what the mm-hmm. hell you've been working on for six sessions. <laughs> We've all been there. Mm-hmm. Like You were describing the feeling of what have we even gotten done and oh my god, my plan of care has been a crazy plan of care. And part of that's because mm-hmm. you're chasing them. You're chasing them on this wild ride that they're on and you're not going, actually, this is the problem. This is what we need to do. You're not grounded. You're not focused. You're not... Seeing that 10,000 foot view, you're just Mm -hmm. chasing whatever they come in with that day. And we can't expect these people to be grounded. If you can recognize that they're pan catastrophizing, you can go into the session prepared for that and go, this person's going to want to go down all of these different avenues. I got to remember what we're here for. And it's such a different approach when you know that going in, when you recognize the signs of pain catastrophizing, and you can actually observe and not react. I think that's such a powerful Mm. thing. Once you finally are able to do it with somebody, and I'm not saying I do it every time, a lot of it's dependent on where I'm at that day and whether I've even put together that somebody is a pain catastrophizer. But when you can find that person you can do that with and you go, oh, It's such a different session.
0: Let's go back to Sarah for a moment. What do you do as a pelvic PT in session or before a session, as you hinted at? What do you do that helps you?
1: I think that the idea of chart review is really huge. Like you said, looking at your notes and going, what is the primary problem here? What are we doing? This person has sexual dysfunction, they've got pelvic floor overactivity, and they've got pain catastrophizing. So if they come in and they go, I want to focus on constipation or bladder or whatever that day, you could give them a little information about that, but you go, I really think we need to focus on blah. and We need to focus on the overactivity. We need to focus on this manual technique. We need to focus on talking about dilators. Because I think that's going to give us the most bang for our buck. If you feel confident in saying that, if you feel confident in going, this is what I think will help you the most today. I think those people are looking for some steadiness and some stability. And if you can be that stable force and go, I actually think this would help you more. A lot of times they're very responsive to that because they're looking for a hand in the darkness. They're looking for some of that. Mm. And so if you're calm and steady, Not that you're ignoring what they're coming in for, but you can filter out some of that extra noise. I think that the session Mm. becomes a lot more
0: focused and it's just different. It's like being grounded to your point. And with grounding, tune into your body. You may know someone's a catastrophizer going in and I think that is very helpful to even name it or to acknowledge it. I've been in sessions where you recognize it midway through and you're in the evaluation or follow-up and you go, oh, okay. These statements sound like magnifying, ruminating, helplessness, or some combination of all three of them. Okay. Got it. Let's address this differently. Pay attention to your body would be my tip. When I'm working with a pain catastrophizer, I am usually getting more anxious and then I'm also, okay, yeah, let's assess. Usually I'm trying to assess something new because I'm about to give them something new as a treatment and or chasing these various different treatments. And I love your point. We're not trying to disregard people. We're not saying ignore your patient and tell them, I know what's best for you. Yet when they start to talk about I'm worried something else is going on. You need to be able to have a conversation with them that says, what do you know about the causes of sexual dysfunction? Or what do you know about vaginismus? And I find that question very helpful for the person who is searching for a diagnosis. That does mean I have to be prepared for that conversation. If you are not sure how to explain what causes vaginismus, okay, please look it up. I would also encourage everyone to practice a biopsychosocial explanation of various kinds of pelvic floor dysfunction. Because I think with pelvic floor, there's this interesting phenomenon where you can't see it the way you see your hand. I can see my hand. I can see when it's cut. I can see how the cut is healing. I can Understand that it's broken because it's deformed. And when I have pain in my pelvis, I can't assess it that same way if it's a deep pain. And we know that the biopsychosocial model is the best way to approach health and well being. But I think with something like vaginismus, it's very easy to fall back on, for example, overactivity. Oh, well, your pelvic floor is tight. And now this person's like, well, why is my pelvic floor tight? And guess what? They're still on a hunt for something. And most of our treatments are like, hey, let's try to desensitize the pelvic floor. So I try to use that same language with them to explain sensitization. How does your thought about the pain, how does your fear of penetration affect your body in real time, whether it's not becoming aroused or, yes, clenching your muscles in in response to protection? Etc. So, what do you know about X condition? And then I've got to be ready to say, okay, here are the multifaceted aspects of this condition. And then, usually, Sammy, the person is like, oh, so blank could be contributing to my issue. And they have the aha moment. And I don't have to be like, you're stressed air avoidance is the real cause of your pelvic floor <laughs> that's where we start to tell people it's in their head totally when, when we can't give them a when we can't give them a succinct biopsychosocial explanation we leave them open to trying to still find medical pathologies if that's the case and sometimes it is I think sometimes people do need to have certain tests done to help them. If we got someone with urinary frequency or someone with vaginismus and they've never had a pelvic exam, they might find benefit in having a basic, at least external pelvic exam with a provider so that someone can say to them, here's what we know it's not. We know that for these reasons, it is probably not this condition. And again, you need to be able to have that conversation with your patient rather than just, know we're going to keep working on the pelvic floor. Well, how would they know that something isn't inflamed? How would they know that something isn't torn or tearing? Could they look at the area themselves and see that's not what took place? Or could they look for signs of infection if that's what they're worried about? Or could we talk about the risk factors for cancer and how they might not have any of those signs or symptoms and so it's very unlikely it's not that you don't have it but what is the likelihood if you know it it doesn't have to be a number i usually tell people it's unlikely because you don't have x y or z and i see how they react and did that help them wrap their head around it
1: I think what you're speaking to is is this educational piece. A lot of the patients who come in with this catastrophizing are really good at Googling things, but they don't have the basic knowledge to understand what they're seeing on Google or WebMD or whatever mm-hmm. it is. They might be seeing all of these conditions, vulvodynia, vaginismus, overactive pelvic floor muscles, and they... See those things, and they can be very scary because the WebMD version isn't going to give this biopsychosocial explanation. It's not going to help them understand maybe what the anatomy looks like. Even if this type of person was to look at their pelvic floor, I think it helps to have somebody go, This is what a healthy pelvic floor should look like, because not a lot of us really know that, right? Unless you're educated in this area. Maybe somebody has always had a ton of redness in their vestibule and that's their normal. And every time they've looked at it, they've gone, this is what it should look like. And maybe they have no idea that vaginal tissue or vulvar tissue should look pink and healthy and not red and angry, (laughs) you know? So I think that educating people on what is normal, what is abnormal, what can you look at to help ease some of your fears That's where a lot of that education comes in because that's empowering. Then they can actually go back and go, okay, now I know what's abnormal, what's normal and start to monitor for themselves versus having to rush to the doctor for the latest and greatest test. I found that with my patient, Sarah, one of our aha moments was a day that she admitted that she didn't really feel comfortable identifying different parts of her genitalia. She didn't really know what the different names of things were, what the different holes were, what the different structures were. And I pulled up some animated images of vulvas and then some pictures on Google and we went through it. I said, this is your clitoris, this is your urethra, this is your vagina, this is your anus. These are the labia. We went through the anatomy and she was very interested in the way that people are interested when they are putting together. Oh my God, that's what I was looking at. Oh, that's what I was feeling. I could see her making these connections, and I was like, I can't believe that I missed that this person didn't have basic sex ed. That's the trouble that comes with assuming, especially with patients who catastrophize. That was a really big aha moment for me, and that's something I love about that question of, what do you know about blah? Because maybe Mm -hmm. we start to get a little bit more of that information a little quicker if we just ask, what's your background on this? And maybe she would have said, honestly... I didn't get sex ed. I don't really know anything about this area. And I could have gone, oh, in the first visit, right? I could have skipped so much time and so much banging my head against a wall if I had asked her that question and she had given me that answer. So just a Mm -hmm. a lesson for both of us, I I think.
0: Oh, it was years in my practice before I started that question, (laughs) Sammy. So (laughs) I feel you there. The other thing to consider for pain catastrophizing is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm seeing in the literature this interesting mix of physical therapists being able to help with cognitive restructuring, with changing the way that you think about your condition, whether it's pain or something else. We'll stick with pain because of our case today, but again, someone could catastrophize with other pelvic conditions, certainly with constipation, certainly with urinary frequency, I've seen it. So we can help people actually change the way they think about their pain. And I think this is important to consider that neuroplasticity has already helped someone who catastrophizes catastrophize more. So the more that they are thinking and doing these things, primarily thinking these things, their brain starts to adapt to support those processes, to support their hypervigilance, their rumination, to reduce their self-efficacy. Literally the part of the brain that helps you figure out how do I help myself, how can I explore this pain, actually starts to decrease and shrink. If we don't use it, we lose it. So When we're working with these patients, it's not a matter of, hey, we're going to have this one conversation and it's all going to end overnight. But rather, it's a process of helping them redefine the way that they look at their pain, of starting to help model a new way of approaching the pain. And we might need to be the ones to provide some of that language. I think that's where we start to See the work of Peter O'Sullivan, for example, in low back pain and helping us understand these fear avoidant pain catastrophizing phenomenons. So we can actually do something about it as physical therapists. Now, if you're not sure how, then working with a psychologist is very helpful. I think working with a psychologist and working with pain is often the best way to go about it because of all of these psychosocial factors. So it's not an either or. Having someone who can help them talk through their pain is important. And here's what I was surprised by, Sammy. I had a lot of patients who were seeing me and a mental health provider. And the clinic in which I work, we're actually all in the same office together. So I'd be like, okay, I know that you're seeing so-and-so down the hall. But whenever you come in with me, it's like, what is going on with this pain? We just talk about it nonstop. And I finally started asking my patients Have you talked with your therapist about your pain? Sammy, I was jaw to the floor, shocked at how many people told me no. We have never discussed my pelvic pain, my chronic low back pain, my chronic SI. And I think it goes back to this dichotomy of like mental health, physical health mental health, physical health. And I was like, oh my god, here I am thinking that your therapist is going to help you with these psychosocial constructs around pain, albeit maybe they were. However, I started asking my patients, I would like for you to talk about pain with your psychologist because pain takes up so much of your brain space right now. Every time we meet, I know that you share how much you think about this, how much you worry about this, how much this affects your day-to-day activities. And I think it would be really important to talk with your therapist to make sure that our mind-body component here is being addressed so that we can understand this pain more. And that's actually one of the best ways, evidence based ways to help you with your chronic pain. So that was my little experiment. I was like, okay, that's crazy, but I'm going to ask them to go ahead and and talk about it. And they started to do it. They started to talk about it. The people who started to talk about it, I really started to see a difference in. And it could have been me too, because I think once I knew hey, we need to address the the catastrophizing or these other psychosocial factors. And I was making more of that push for truly working with both disciplines. I've started to see shifts in those people.
1: That's such an important point. Oh my gosh.
0: It's just like, just because they're seeing a therapist, if they're in pain, ask them. And one of my patients with vaginismus had never talked with her therapist ever about the pain because he was a male provider. She wasn't comfortable talking about that. So now that we had that conversation, it was like, okay, it's not enough to just tell you to go to therapy and talk about your pain, but we need to find a provider you're comfortable with. And we need to help people see this link. Definitely. Because it's hard to see that you're catastrophizing when you're in the middle of it. And as you start to maybe gain some language, I. Usually, don't say to my patients, You're catastrophizing, but I'll say, I could see that you're really worried about your pain. I could say that you're very hypervigilant. You're always monitoring every little sensation in your body. And these are gentle conversations that we have, as I know that we've built rapport. This is not like a day <laughs> one kind of a thing. Pointing these things out can sometimes also help them see maybe I am actually more affected by this than I let on. I think oftentimes people really just separate the two. Yeah. The mental component of it and then the physical component of it, but yet they experience so much disability as a cause of their pain and they wouldn't think to get mental health services for that.
1: You know, you think about that example that you have of your vaginismus patient who was seeing a counselor. It's just amazing that something like that could affect not only your body to such a high degree, but also your relationship, right? It causes interpersonal problems, relationship dynamics. It's not just a physical issue anymore. And it's so surprising that somebody wouldn't think that was important enough to discuss, or maybe wouldn't feel comfortable enough to discuss that with their provider. And since we've talked about that in the past, I've started to ask the same thing. And my own data from asking patients, this is totally supporting exactly what you're saying, which is It's so easy to tell a patient, oh, it really would help you if you saw a mental health therapist, and that's it. I think a lot of us end it there, and it's so important to follow up and go, do you talk about this pain with them? Because we talk about the pain a lot, and I can help you with the physical side of things, but I think it's also important you get some help for the feelings you have about this pain, the feelings of how this pain limits you and the problems that it causes in your relationships and in your life. and people have been surprised that oh maybe I do need to talk about that when I bring it up with them but it's it's just amazing to me. I had a similar jaw to the floor moment too.
0: <laughs> yeah, so at first I was like what the heck why is nobody talking about this? And so then I started trying to learn more about psychology and pain. And here's what also shocked me, a lot of mental health programs Do not spend significant time on pain psychology. Like how a lot of gynos don't get a lot on pelvic floor function. And we are just like, obviously, you should know about it. You're delivering babies. What are you doing? How could you be an OB? Yet, I've seen that in mental health programs because I got interested in them. And I thought, there's got to be a pain psychology program out there that I could take beyond pain neuroscience. I think explaining pain neuroscience is very important. I'm also finding that actual psychology of how pain works and affects you is really interesting to me. And that's when I learned mental health therapists do not get a lot of training in pain psychology. However, it is a specialty within mental health. And we will link in our show notes a link for you to find pain psychologists near you. It's the Association of Pain Psychology. I will link it. And so if you're referring to a mental health provider, if you're looking to build your network, it's actually very important that you ask anyone in the mental health field how much experience they have with pain-related pain psychology treatments and what they might do for it. And just consider that If that's the primary thing that your patient is coming in for, that's what they need help with, then there's got to be a provider that is interested in studying and figuring it out or already has the experience in doing it. And to your point, you don't just send them to therapy and say, hey, good luck. And I think that actually helps with the multidisciplinary care conversation with patients when you can explain, here's why I would like for you to see a pain psychologist. Don't just send them over there and hope that one day they decide to talk about their pain, but say, this is one of the primary reasons. Because I think if people want to talk about other things or there's other things that are very important that they need to unpack, usually they have a sense of that. But there's plenty of people who are like, I don't think I've had any big traumatic events in my life. I think I have pretty normal stress levels, which. Of course, sometimes might seem higher (laughs) to us as providers, but they're looking at you like, why would I go get therapy? Like, I have a pain condition or I have a, a urinary condition. Why would I go speak to a therapist? And I think we need to do a better job. I needed to do a better job explaining what a therapist could offer and why it might be helpful. And no, it's not in your head. And I'm not just sending you to therapy because pelvic PT didn't work. It's that addressing pain catastrophizing will help pelvic PT work because the research also shows that if you have pain catastrophizing, pain treatments are going to be less effective. We need to know that as providers. So if I know that you as a moderate to high pain catastrophizer are going to have less effectiveness from these treatments that have helped hundreds of other patients before you, now I'm not going to beat my head against the wall trying to get new certifications or come up with some crazy technique. I'm going to understand actually the catastrophizing is affecting our work together more than I initially thought. And I've certainly encountered that where I thought we had it under control. And then after a few sessions realized, you know what, actually we are still spinning our wheels or maybe longer than a few sessions. The other conversation is it might take us longer as you're working with all of this. We might not get improvements in six weeks. We might need to be in this for the long run together and adapt our interventions and our treatments and our plan of care to that.
1: It's so interesting, this idea that we have to combine these two therapies in order to get the best outcome because the research also supports that. There's been studies that I've been reading this week about pain catastrophizing and how cognitive behavioral therapy is so helpful for this. And physical therapy can be helpful in chronic pain conditions. But when you have somebody with chronic pain and you do physical therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy together as a co treatment, suddenly the outcomes get better. That just speaks to this idea that we have to have a team. Patients might have one versus the other, but On the one hand, if someone's with this pain condition is seeing a psychologist only, they're not actually doing the triggering thing together, right? So they're not going to be necessarily eliciting the pain in the session. Whereas in physical therapy, it's the opposite. We're eliciting the pain, but we're never mentally dealing with it. We're in this weird limbo where we have to have that team approach because we're forcing patients to confront their pain all the time. We have someone with vaginismus and we're trying to help them with dilators in a session. And if they have this mental block and if they have this fear and this catastrophizing around that, all we're doing is torturing them, you know? And then on the flip side, if they go into a psychologist's office, maybe they're totally fine to talk about these things, but the psychologist isn't actually putting them in that situation where they're triggered and they're flooded and they get emotional. And I just wonder how much better things would be if we could have that combo approach and get people to actually to have mental strategies to deal with that emotion that comes up. And then also have that physical aspect where we're helping them deal with the physicality of the pain and the desensitization and all of that.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the fundamentals of what we're seeing now called psychologically informed Mm -hmm. physical therapy. And psychologically informed pelvic PT is absolutely a necessity. To your point, how quickly do we get someone to start to do the thing that hurts? That's literally the point of our evaluation, right? Hopefully on day one, we may defer that. Certainly we may not do a pelvic exam right away. And I think to your point, when we practice without those principles, without an awareness of it, then we may take patients too far. I think that the longer I practice and the more I learn about this, the, how do I say this? I am less fearful of patients who are fearful to move in one way. I'm not as gentle with them as I used to be because I know that they need some exposure. And I also usually tend not to miss the signals that lead to someone getting flooded and overwhelmed. Certainly not perfect. But I think I just didn't quite appreciate those as much before, especially if the person's like, no, I want to do this, and they might begin getting flooded to your point or, or something like that. So I think the longer we learn about this, the more we learn about this, the better we can help our patients because our patients are going to have their reactions to pain when we ask them to do painful things. And that's, again, what shocks me about physical therapy is we are not trained to deal with people's reactions to the pain. We're just trained to think about the pain and how to treat it.
1: I frequently try to practice really clear communication about expectations in regards to pain. I keep thinking about these patients who are very black and white when it comes to their pain. They're very all or nothing. It's either hurting or it's not hurting, or I can do this thing or I can't do this thing. And I try to adjust my communication in a couple of different ways. First, by giving them some shades of gray, going... There are times where your pain's less, right? We have to figure out just enough activity to make your pain maybe a two. Because I want to desensitize this. I want you to notice the pain and work through maybe a two out of a ten on the pain scale. But I don't want you to push yourself so far that you're getting flooded. Another thing that I've extended that to is anxiety. Those people who are really anxious, who are starting to get really freaked out about doing whatever it is that they're doing, Sometimes I'll have them pause and also go, what's my anxiety number right now? What's my fear number? What's my panic number? And pause and go, okay, I can't get above a 3 out of 10 on the pain scale, but I also can't get above a 3 out of 10 on the anxiety scale. Sometimes when I bring those things in, I can help the patient understand that pain-anxiety connection And also understand why it's so important to be monitoring both things when they're doing dilator training, for example. That's part of my instruction now is this is your expected sensation. Mm -hmm. This is also your expected emotion. If you get above this, you're going too far. There you go. It's a clear boundary where they can go, okay, three out of 10, three out of 10. That's what I'm aiming for. And there's some safety in that, right? So I think that's a communication Mm -hmm. piece that I've adjusted to help with those people that I've found has been a little bit more successful in getting that, for lack of a better word, compliance. People feel a little bit more comfortable doing the thing when they know what it should feel like.
0: Right. And you're increasing their self-efficacy. I love, love, love what you're saying there because you're using CBT principles. You're using graded exposure to say, yes, you've got to sit with some discomfort and some emotional discomfort like that is the point of graded exposure it's not to do pain free things over and over it's to do gradually harder more exposing things so that you can get to whatever end point you're trying to get to and you are incorporating their mind and their body with that and helping them draw this awareness so that is awesome awesome example of how PTs can tie this in without doing quote unquote therapy You're not sitting there trying to figure out where the anxiety originated from or what happened in their childhood. You're saying, here's how we're going to work with it. We know this is actually a natural part of trying something new and scary. And that also normalizes it to an extent. It's not pathological that they couldn't get through a, a dilator size. They know actually that might be too much for my body and it's okay for me to stop.
1: Monica, I was kind of curious, do you have any other little tips and tricks for helping a person do the thing, helping somebody who's very anxious in this way, besides getting them into counseling? Because obviously that's the gold standard, right? We want to find that pain psychologist in our area and refer them. But is there anything that you found in your practice to help your patients develop that self-efficacy and do the thing?
0: When it comes to building their self-efficacy, I try to understand what they know In the evaluation, and it's my favorite question to ask at the very end of the subjective, what do you know about, insert their chief complaint? They'll tell me what they know, which goes a few different ways, but let's assume it's someone who doesn't know a lot. So I say, can we talk about what causes vaginismus? And then I have a conversation with them around that biopsychosocial framework of what contributes to it. And I'll usually say, what do you think of that? How does that sit with you? And that's when the wheels start to click. And they usually have an idea of where they want to start. Yeah, you know what? I'm actually open to psychology and PT. Great. I'll give you a few referrals when we're done here. For PT, here's what we could focus on. And if there's, let's say, a multitude of things pelvic PT could help them with, then we talk about where would you like to start? So I'm trying to build it in from our earliest encounters so that we can continue that kind of trend throughout. And if that's been going well, if I've been able to do that on my end and they've been responsive to it, then we usually get into this really cool rhythm where they're showing up to visits with a list of things they want to work on, which is actually achievable in PT different than the person who I have not done this with who comes in and is, oh my God, I noticed this and I noticed that. You know what? I didn't get to do anything because my neck hurt all week and that's different. I'm talking about a person who comes in and says, I used my dilators last time and I noticed that after I took them out, I had some burning around the opening And I'm just not sure like what I could do for that. Could we talk about that today? That is a person who is really embodied during whatever home exercise program or exposure they were doing. How do we get there? That's a great question. Let's say we started off with everything in the subjective. Then I want to know what they're comfortable starting with. And I usually like to have a few different Options in mind based on my exam, what might be the most helpful tidbits, at least two big bang for our buck things that we could go off of and explain to them these are probably going to be the most effective ways to start treating your condition. Where would you like to begin? So that again, they are showing up, they are telling me what they're comfortable with, and they are already more engaged. But sometimes you need to rescue a plan of care midway because it didn't go that way. (laughs) Or sometimes people, you ask them, where do you want to start? And they say, I don't know. And I used to think, oh, God, seriously, like you're not going to engage in therapy, which is actually quite naive. That was a person who wanted me to be more directive. And so then really it's back on me, balls in my court to, again, think of what is the biggest bang for a buck? how do I stay true to my practice pattern, which is the biopsychosocial model? Whenever I start to veer away from that model, Sammy, I know there's a breakdown in how I'm interacting with this person. I feel like those are my tips is really to start from the subjective, to try to carry it forward throughout our whole plan of care, to pause when I see that they're really worried, to always acknowledge it. It sounds like this pain takes up a lot of your brain space. It sounds like it's really tiring to think about this pain all the time. That is empathy, when you can hear their emotion and and identify it to them. And I think that those statements go a long way with this too. Yeah. I
1: find that when I ask that question of, how are you feeling about this problem? And they tell me and I say, that sounds so hard, that frequently leads to tears. That's a sign that they're carrying around so much of that anxiety. They're like ready to blow at any time. And that's a signal Mm -hmm. to me sometimes in the session. When I pause for that empathy moment and tell them that sounds difficult and they cry, that's a sign that they are carrying more than they are letting on initially.
0: And I also think crying is great. I will also say, yeah, crying is like an emotional bowel movement is what I tell my patients. You gotta let that shit go. It is finishing out a stress response in your body. If someone cries, let's also be okay with seeing how they respond afterwards. And because I I think sometimes we think of as crying as like, oh my God, they're so upset about this. Oh, that was that was too much. And Actually, the act of crying alone in itself is incredibly therapeutic. There's nothing to be done when someone is crying except to sit with them until it passes. Pass them a tissue if they're comfortable with touch. If you're comfortable with touch in in our current day, maybe you have a hand on their back or, you know, whatnot. But be with them and, and let them be okay with it. Let them know you're okay with it. And continue to sit until it's done. Oftentimes, they will try to cut it off early. Those are the ones where I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I I get it. You're really uncomfortable. And does it keep happening? And if it keeps happening, if it's getting disruptive, then yes, definitely. They probably need some more support. But also, it's so freeing to meet someone who listens to your story, who witnesses you fully in the extent of your pain and just shows you kindness, a level of kindness that you probably haven't shown yourself in a while. And I just know that sometimes you'll go through a period of crying like that, even for a little bit, and it will continue to keep getting better. And there's other markers to look for. So I guess that's my own warning because I am totally a crier. So I think crying, yep. Go for it. Let that shit go. We yeah. all need a good cry session.
1: I love the advice about just sitting with them and being present for that because it's really important in that moment to help them feel seen and heard. For me, it's not that I'm uncomfortable with the crying. It's more just it's a sign to me that they've been carrying a lot in regards to this pain. It's a sign that there's some emotional weight to what they're telling you beyond. I, sprained my ankle and now I'm here for rehab. There's something so much bigger Mm -hmm. that they've been carrying. And when you touch on that little bit of empathy and you start bringing those things to the surface, they just let that out. Like you say, it's really an important thing to be there for.
0: Yeah. An important sign of trust and safety. Your patient is saying to you, I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to be this open and this raw. And I think if we can acknowledge that in a calm, present way, then we are just building up so much more trust in our alliance. And that's going to go a long way through our plan of care. So with your patient, I wonder, is this someone that you are currently treating and you will be doing something different? Or if this is someone that you have treated? And then when did you start implementing these kind of catastrophizing changes?
1: So this is someone that I had seen in the past. We ended up discontinuing care for a temporary period of time. When I started to notice this catastrophizing and all of these things that were going on, I changed my approach so that it was more focused and more deliberate. So we started to focus on the low-hanging fruit, the really important things. I started to ask more questions. What do you know about? What do you know about this? What do you know about that? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about this? And we started to unpack some of the hangups that she was having about dilator training, for example. We got to a point where she started to use the dilators more regularly, would come back with more specific questions, which is how I knew that she was participating more because she had more, I tried it and I noticed blank. I tried it and it was difficult because of X, Y, or Z. And so that's how I knew that she was starting to engage a little bit more. And we also started to talk a little bit more about the catastrophizing and started to bring it to light a little bit more. Eventually she admitted that she had been going through a lot of stress and she had been feeling more pressure from her husband and there was a lot more interpersonal dynamics at play. And so. We started to open up the conversation of counseling and she began to be more and more interested in it. And finally, she told me, I feel like I have the tools right now to do the thing for a little while on my own. She had a really tight schedule at work and she said, I'd like to dedicate a little bit more energy to this counseling thing. And maybe I can try the dilators while I'm going through that. And then if I'm at a place where I'm ready to progress, we can come back and we'll work together again. And I said, cool, Um. let's do that. I think that's great. I felt like our relationship changed over the course of therapy in that she would come to me and need me to fix her. And then eventually she was giving me more of a self-efficacy statement of I want to do the thing on my own for a little bit. And I was thrilled about that. So that's where we left things off. She didn't meet a lot of her PT goals, to be quite honest. She wasn't having comfortable sex by the time we finished. She hadn't reached my functional goal of inserting the number five dilator. But I felt like she left with more tools. I felt like she left with more information to help herself. And I'm hopeful that
0: she's continuing to work on these things. We'll let that one be, I guess, at least for now. It's a great ending. I think we don't always know how somebody's going to continue their journey. And sometimes we don't get to hear the follow up. It's clear that you had such a huge impact with this patient to help her go from helpless to empowered, understanding, feeling capable on her own. I think that is the best goal that she could have reached, and who knows where her journey will continue to go with her vaginismus. Thanks for bringing that to the table, Sammy. That was an awesome conversation about catastrophizing we are going to have more resources in the show notes so check it out learn more comment if there's something that you found that's different or helpful or that you have more questions on if you want more examples of this too let us know
1: thank you so much for listening to this episode let's keep the conversation going on instagram at the conscious clinician and Facebook backslash the conscious clinician links are in the show notes if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community stay conscious everyone